Sponsorship of the KQED live audio stream comes from Xfinity Mobile, featuring customized wireless plans. Customers can choose unlimited, buy the gig, shared data, or a mix of both and switch it up anytime. Learn more at XfinityMobile.com. From KQED in San Francisco, this is the Writer's Block. Hi, I'm Alex Cohen, a.k.a. Axles of Evil. And I'm Jennifer Barbie, a.k.a. Casey Bomber. We're here reading from our book Down and Derby, The Insider's Guide to Roller Derby, which is a book that'll tell you just about anything you need to know about the modern revival of roller derby. Uh, But we wouldn't be where we are today without roller derby of the past. So today we're going to read from a chapter called The First Whistle, which is about the origins of the sport of roller derby. Roller derby is the cat of the sports animal kingdom. No matter how hard the sport falls, it always seems to land on its feet. Every time it appears derby is dead, it somehow pounces back into claw-bearing action. It's already been through several lives, and we're fairly certain there are quite a few more ahead of it. The first recognized incarnation of this multi-lived minx dates back nearly 80 years to the Great Depression. Yes, if there was anything remotely great about the Depression, it was that it was an era when roller derby, as we know it, took its first tentative lap. In the 1930s, an American had to be creative. In order to earn a buck or two, people were poor and they were desperate. And when there's desperation, there are always crafty people ready to capitalize on it. These were the days of dance marathons, where promoters pushed contestants to their physical limits. Couples would clutch and sway for days at a time in an attempt to outlast their rivals and earn just enough money to feed their families. At the same time, a new and happier pastime's popularity was booming, roller skating. For mere cents on the dollar, the youth of the world could woo each other wearing high-laced boots fitted with screechy metal or, slightly preferable, scratchy wood wheels, skating counterclockwise around rinks to the most popular pipe organ music of the day. Along with other such sinful activities as walking in parks and attending those new talking pictures at the movie house, roller skating rinks took off as the hub of teenage activity. It didn't take long before someone put two and two together and realized the marathon dancing fad and the roller skating craze could work well together. That man was a former film distributor named Leo Seltzer. Seltzer started by promoting derbies, marathon races, with partners trading off laps on a bank track until they either successfully skated the equivalent of the distance between New York and Los Angeles or collapsed from bloody feet and or exhaustion. But these early incarnations of Seltzer's brand of roller derby were not entirely original. In fact, they were actually a more extreme incarnation of roller skating races that had been creating controversy in New York as early as 1885. On March 2, 1885, Madison Square Garden played host to the debut of an unprecedented six-day skating marathon. Men arrived from all over the world to strap on skates and test their endurance to the limit, or well beyond it. Stories that month in the New York Times revealed the public zeal throughout the race as 19-year-old William Donovan of Elmira, New York, pulled into a handy lead to win. It was a remarkable feat for a young man who almost missed the contest altogether when his skates were stolen. In six days, he skated a record-breaking 1,092 miles, covering up to 204 miles in a single day. But a week later, Donovan would be dead. Against the advice of both his trainer and doctor, Donovan's father removed him from bed rest only two days after the tournament in order to make some extra money on public appearances. 
Donovan showed signs of strain and was soon too sick to stand. While he struggled for his life, the public was shocked and saddened by the death of another young race entrant, Joseph Cohen. Officials ruled that Cohen's death was caused by meningitis, aggravated, if not induced, by prolonged excitement of body and mind, and also by exposure consequent upon his participation in a six-day roller skating match. In Donovan's case, reports suggested that he left his sickbed to watch the passing of the P.T. Barnum Circus Parade outside his window and moments later succumbed to acute pericarditis, exacerbated by the exertions of the race. Suddenly, the early excitement for the sport had turned into a tide of anger and public outrage. Roller skating, it seemed, was a killer of vital young men, a wheeled devil sent to tempt the young into vice with fatal consequences. After a follow-up race failed to attract a crowd, one New York Times editorialist described the dire gravity of the entire skating pastime in a piece on May 18th of that year. Elopements, betrayals, bigamous marriages, and other social transgressions, the writer suggested, were traced to the association of the innocent with the vicious upon the skating floor. Furthermore, the writer asserted, the rink is too often a place where good-looking scoundrels do a great deal of harm. Many predicted that such bad press would spell the end of not just derbies, but roller skating itself. Periodic races held at Madison Square Garden over the next 50 years proved those predictions false. Races continued virtually unchanged, cropping up every decade or so. While Leo Seltzer may not have invented the endurance race, he was a man who understood the value of a good hook and angle. So when Seltzer debuted his version of roller derby on August 13, 1935, at the Chicago Coliseum, he forever changed the sport by introducing two key elements, spectacle and women. Seltzer realized the tradition of all-male sports was missing out on some key audience demographics, female. And what better way to reach the women of America than to include them as competitors? From all over the country, women traveled to Seltzer's Chicago hub, partnered with their sons, brothers, husbands, and fathers for the opportunity to be a part of this newly named transcontinental roller derby. One of these women was Josephine Ma Bogash, an already middle-aged, no-nonsense broad who dragged along her son, Billy, Known to sometimes carry a large hat pin in her hair, Ma would slide it out during a traffic jam on the track and, unseen by the refs, stick her surprised competitors to get them out of the way. Underhanded, you say? Absolutely. But the audience loved her, as well as her fresh-faced son. Race after race, Bogash fans filled seats to see what the duo would do next. Ma Bogash's fiery demeanor and skill on skates gave Seltzer the first indication that personality players were the ticket-selling wave of the future. As anyone who participates in Derby Today can tell you, combining sport and femininity is a double-edged sword. It was no different in the early days. While the women attracted a whole new audience, it also resulted in skepticism from the media. How could female skaters actually be both womanly and athletic? Who wants to see women doing manly things in manly places? Why, the next thing you know, they'll want to go out and get jobs and wear pants to church. In other words, while women finally had publicly recognized role models in the world of sports, others were hell-bent on dismissing their participation as a sideshow novelty. That was merely the first battle in a war that still continues raging today, but like it or leave it, the transcontinental roller derby brought co-ed competition into the world, and it was here to stay.
In the initial transcontinental derby races, co-ed pairs skated laps around an oval track. First, men would skate a number of laps while their female partner rested, and then they would switch. Though Seltzer reportedly began staging his races on the traditional flat oval track, he eventually returned to a banked one because tired, out-of-control skaters had a tendency to end up sprawling into the audience's laps. Ironically, today, this very brand of audience participation has become one of the most gleeful arguments in favor of modern flat-track roller derby. To add excitement to the long-lasting endurance laps, exhausted skaters would be expected to periodically stop mid-stride to compete in short sprinting races, or jams. Because these jams were quick bursts of speed that resulted in immediate cash winnings, these races often got fierce. Brawling and falling reached new heights because the skaters would stop at nothing to finish first. One notable member of the audience to witness some of this down-and-dirty strategizing was a popular newsman of the day named Damon Runyon. Runyon noticed that polite audiences turned into a pack of rafter-raising heathens when the bodies hit the floor. At a dinner with Seltzer and friends in 1938, Runyon suggested that Seltzer incorporate this human pinball action and strategy into a more structured co-ed sport. Over the course of that meal, legend has it, the modern game of roller derby was born amid scratches and doodles on a napkin. Along the road to creating the new sport, however, there were some strange and hilarious sidetracks. At one point, rather than two teams, Seltzer tried three teams on the track, all competing at once. Imagine a football game with three teams facing off at the same time. If the term mayhem, or something less polite, comes to mind when you try to picture 15 skaters duking it out with each other simultaneously, you get the picture. Leo Seltzer was desperately looking for ways to fill the seats, and as a promoter, he wasn't above asking his skaters to give a little extra for the fans. Audiences in Des Moines were privy to probably the strangest promotion in derby history when they turned on their radios in 1938 to find a broadcast of the roller derby skaters playing basketball on skates against the Harlem Globetrotters. Though a basketball game against the Globetrotters was pure insanity, the comparison to those famous showmen wasn't altogether crazy. In many ways, the structure of the early roller derby league had a lot in common with how the Globetrotters worked. Their travels took them all over the country, to cities like Cincinnati, St. Louis, and Louisville. When they arrived at their next destination, skaters would split up into a home team and a team of visitors, each geared toward the part of the country they were in. If the skaters were in Nebraska, for instance, the home team would immediately become the Omaha something or others, and the visitors would represent a frightening, evil big city such as New York. But even if they clashed like titans on the track, the two opposing teams shared traveling arrangements, hotel lodging, and locker rooms. Men, women, trainers, announcers, and officials were all one big happy family, sometimes literally. Since their schedule allowed very little social time outside the confines of their charter bus, intra-league romances were not uncommon. What's more, while these skaters may have been professional athletes, their salary didn't come in the form of a bi-weekly paycheck, fancy cars, fur coats, and an entourage. Paid in food, shelter, and the opportunity to see the world, they were quite literally broke. Never mind that in roller derby the definition of the world was Bangor, Lincoln, and Pittsburgh. Travel was still a bonus for these kids. And with some notable exceptions, most of these skaters were just that, kids. What many of them lacked in education, they made up for in desire, hope, and energy. With the Derby, they got a family, three square meals a day, and, even better, 
admiration and applause. Much of that applause went to the personality players like Ma and Billy Bogash. Promoter Leo Seltzer began recognizing their potential as crowd-pleasers and started developing and promoting rivalries between the skaters. Sure, the audience loved a good fall, but it was positively itching for a good fight, especially if that fight was between two women. Derby found its first perfect rivalry in the matchup of Midge, Tuffy, Bursoon, and Jerry Murray. Sixteen-year-old Jerry Murray was a glamorous and pretty high school dropout from Des Moines, Iowa, who joined roller derby in 1938. Tuffy, the rough-and-tumble 15-year-old daughter of a St. Paul, Minnesota plumber, joined in 1941. Murray was deemed the sweetheart pinup girl of Derby, and even today you can occasionally find evidence of her popularity when trademark Jerry Murray hair bows appear on eBay. Tuffy, in contrast, stood out as a tough-talking four-foot-eleven thug, making up for her lack of glamour with an endless reservoir of pure and scrappy determination. It was a classic case of good versus evil, only with a whole lot of gray area in between, where hair-pulling, sneaky fists to the ribs and tripping resided. Murray was sneaky, but smilingly charming, a wolf in Betty Grable's clothing. Tuffy was brutal, but in a nakedly apparent way that resulted in a season-long, hilariously stormy relationship with the penalty box. Their clashes were legendary, and the fans loved the blue-collared justice of their brawls. In fact, the audience became so passionate along Murray-Tuffy partisan lines that a female fan once reportedly threw her baby at Tuffy in the heat of outrage. Luckily, Tuffy, quick on the draw, caught the infant and returned the child safely to its slightly less agitated father. To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, visit kqed.org slash writersblock. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED. <laughs> 